The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and leather gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. This week, come with me on a journey of discovery of sweaty, heavy 80s saxophone licks and the knowledge that sometimes relationships can be more important than story. All of that's coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I'm talking this week with Game Master Gannon Reedy of the Chicago-based cyberpunk actual play podcast, Neo Scum. He's a theater director with a deep love of music, and the two of us had a fabulous conversation. But before we get to that, line producer Matt has an important announcement about the most wonderful time of the year. No, not Christmas. Take it away, Matt. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew Boudreaux executive director of the Audio Drama Network and organizer of the annual 11th Hour Audio Productions event. It's that time again. Time to start organizing teams and writing scripts for another year of 11th Hour Audio Production Mayhem. Every year for the last four years, we've gathered teams from all over the United States and Europe to produce some really fantastic horror in celebration of Halloween and Audio Drama Day. Our goal is to engage as many teams in 11th Hour Audio Productions as possible. Anyone can take part, and there aren't many rules. Rule number one, to alleviate copyright concerns, all show materials must be original. Rule number two, shows do not have to be written in October, but shows should be recorded and post-produced in the month of October. Rule number three, shows must involve more than one production company, as the point is to gather and learn from each other and to create awesome audio. Rule number four, Scripts for your audio dramas must be under 30 pages in length. If you'd like to take part, but don't know where to start, find us at at 11th Hour Audio on Facebook and at 11th Hour Horror on Twitter. Or contact us at info at oralstage.com. Or visit our website at www.11thhouraudio.com. So writers, get writing. Producers, get cracking on gathering your teams. Let's make this year even bigger than the last. Thank you, Mr. Boudreaux. So last week we played an episode of Neo Scum up in this John. What, David, what are you? What region of the United States do you think you're even from? Come on. And this week I'm talking to someone intimately involved in its creation, Game Master Gannon Reedy from the One Shot Network. I found this conversation fascinating. We talked about aesthetics and the 80s and punk and picaresque and so much more. Uh, quick heads up, because I don't think we say this explicitly. Every time Gannon refers to Mike, he's talking about his pal Mike Migdal, who plays everyone's favorite rogue trucker, Dak Rambo. Okay, that's enough context, you bastards. Take a listen. Gannon, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. It is, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very stoked to be on. <laughs> uh, so I want to I start by asking you uh, if you have a memory of running your first game. And if so, what is it? Well, from a very young age, I was, I don't know. So I, I had these cousins 
who were like super cool, all older than me, really like genuinely cool, super into music, very charming, but they were also like super nerdy and they'd have like, uh, super into Magic the Gathering. And they had this board game called Hero Quest that I was like, as a young person, I was really obsessed with it. I'd go to their house and I'd be really like nervous and excited, like to like ask them to take a look at this Hero Quest board game. I was very late to D&D, didn't start playing until I was out of college. Um, before that, I actually ended up purchasing uh, this HeroQuest board game to play. So I guess technically, like the first tabletop game that I ran was a game of HeroQuest with my college roommates. But it always felt like um, a, a continuation of like the games I played with my cousins or like the games I would play with my brother. Uh, except it was just transferred to this board. So I've never played Hero Quest. Like, what's the what's the feel of a Hero Quest game? Does the game itself have a a specific tone that you feel pushed towards as a player? Yeah. Well, what I really dig about Hero Quest is that it's like it's like it's like an ultra simplified version of D anD. d You have four people to choose from: a barbarian, a dwarf, an elf, a wizard, and it's just like this map board of just a very basic dungeon that you can and you have all these pieces that you can like modify however you will. But I was always, for me, the thing that always really inspired me for whatever reason is uh, the kind of like 70s, like grit or tone. Uh, It was, I don't know, it was like a game that was made in the 90s, but like the board, I remember like pouring over it as a young kid and there'd be like, there'd be like little drawings of like, like uh, one square, there's like a a torn up piece of paper or a little bit of blood or a a piece of bone. And that like, as a kid not playing this game, just like staring at this board, I'd be like, oh, what's the bone? What does this bone mean? What does this piece of paper mean? Uh, This this spatter of blood. So like, I was always kind of fascinated with kind of like a, a gritty kind of like meat and potatoes, old fashioned concept of sci-fi fantasy. I mean, I'm very affectionate of like the sort of like 70s era Frank Franzetta. Oh yeah, I noticed your Twitter cover image is like a Conan the Barbarian, like sword and sorcery painting, right? Yeah, and that is the cover of HeroQuest. Oh, nice. So yes, it's, so it's that, close to my heart. That's aesthetically stuck around with you for, for a long time. Yeah, that's deep in uh, my uh, creative DNA. What interests you about cyberpunk? Because, you know, I spent some time looking at your Instagram and your Tumblr page. And first of all, Ganon, your cat Band-Aid, is very cute. Thank you very much. He's very good. Secondly, I, I notice a lot of um, arcane and sad psychedelic work. It's really cool. You know, like tarot card designs, burning wrecks with billowing smoke clouds that look like skulls, that Greek Orthodox looking icon of Albert Einstein bleeding from the eyes and mouth yes. with the your theater company logo on his forehead. What aesthetically grabs you about cyberpunk? Well, I'm a huge fan of music. Punk rock has always been very important to me, although the term cyberpunk is, you know, it's more of um, more of an aesthetic thing like than an actual connection to like the New York guys in the 70s or whatever. But being a big fan of certainly those dudes. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I dig I dig Don Carpenter. I dig I, I mean, you were describing like the kind of art and stuff that I dig archaic symbols, weird sort of like sacred and profane concepts. I guess cyberpunk to me is is like, it's an interesting experiment to envision a future 
And instead of like, I feel like it's very, it's very easy to like imagine a future where everything is just blasted out and extremely bleak. And uh, certainly there are, are very compelling things about that, but it's, it's, it's an interesting exercise to like try and imagine a future that is uh, inspiring. So I like to, for me, my version of cyberpunk is just like imagining the here and now, and then just, you know, throwing in the base rules of shadow run and then kind of just like trying to incorporate all the sort of visual and thematic things that I really dig. So like, I think the most interesting part of cyberpunk is just imagining a future and trying to find what is immediately thrilling, what could be potentially inspiring. So I'm I'm curious about like what attracts you to the 80s aesthetically, right? Because the game of Shadowrun itself has changed a lot since it was first published. It adapted to the technology that was available at the time of each printing. But I think when I listened to Neoscum, I, I noticed that the aesthetic of the show, to me, seems fixated on this like maximally cheesy, sweaty saxophone theme for the show, right? It's like kind of a a glossy sheen on a shitty, rundown America. And so I was born in 1988. Cool. Um, Respect 1989 over here. So what what fascinates you about, like, th- this era that took place just before you and I had conscious memories? Well, I dig the 80s, all right. I think, uh, I guess my biggest connection to the 80s is probably uh, indie rock and um, hardcore punk and... Uh, and the John Carpenter movies. I mean, when you, in reading about Chatterrun, like it started in the eighties, it's or seventy nine or something. It's 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 it, the 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 tome itself is very reminiscent of like an eighties concept of what a future could be. You know, weird looking cell phones, weird like phone booths, and like wires all over the place, bright clothing. Before we started playing this game. There, there's like a few movies that we watched that felt like really kind of both me and Mike had a, a shared appreciation for them. I mean, there's some like real obvious ones like Big Trouble in Little China. Kurt Russell's like such a terrific performance in that movie. And just like the music and the visuals that John Carpenter bring, like they live. I don't know. You know, what's interesting about the 80s is like pop culture wise, we all have this concept of like, you know, bright colors, big neon, uh, leg warmers and like big bombastic synth and new wave pop music. But while all this was going on, you know, you there's like this, it was not so beautiful. Like this, it's interesting because the pop culture is like very shiny and very bright. Um, but like, I don't know, like I'm a, I'm a big fan of some of the gnarlier music of the time. Uh, you had a really terrific heyday of American indie rock bands like Sonic Youth, Black Flag, Minor Threat, Fugazi, like I'm, I'm just naming all the bands in the our band could be your life book, but like for 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 all the gleam and the glitter and stuff, there is a, a a a pretty like gnarly hard edge of anger. I mean, I mean I'm no political historian, but I mean the Reagan era was is is some pretty heavy duty stuff. <laughs> you quote me on that. I think that's that's what interests me so much about neo scum is because I think that there's. I mean, and this is this isn't breaking new ground in any way, but you know how the the same way the boomers wanted to recreate this like weird, campy, sticky fifties during the eighties. I think our generation and the generation immediately prior has a similar obsession with the eighties. You know, reified in things as broad ranging as synth wave music to 
remakes of it and the existence yeah. of Stranger Things at all, mm-hmm. right? Right, 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 right. And I, and I, you know, I know it's a game and it's a show and it's a fun podcast that we're doing for fun. But like, I, I think of cyberpunk as being a picaresque genre, right? Like, if you are a cyberpunk hero, you are on the, you are always on the wrong side of the law. You are, you know, in the world of Shadowrun, you might, you know, be a sinless person. Is that, that's from Shadowrun, right? You don't have like... That's on Shadowrun, yeah. Uh, what is it, your like social identification number or whatever it stands for? And it serves as a counter to like the slick corporate Reaganite or Thatcherite perfection that is being pumped out. Yeah, I definitely dig that. Uh, certainly our generation is very infatuated with the 80s. Though for me, when I'm writing it and like thinking of the characters, the colors, what I would like the future to look like. I imagine, uh, I'm, I'm always like imagining the seventies, New York or something like that. I'm for me, my, my, my great affection is seventies culture. And I'm always trying to pull from that myself. Sure. So it's like really dirty, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I like. All of it just like dirty and grungy and punk. Yeah. 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 Combining like the grit with the sort of like beautiful, pristine, slick buildings of a corporate future. Which came first for you, the story and the characters or the decision to play a Shadowrun game? Um, decision to play Shadowrun. Me and Mike were working at this really terrible job where we were, uh, it was a, like a, a logistics company. We were scheduling appointments for truckers to drop off stuff across the country. Oh. I know. It's like one time, we, I've only done one other one of these interviews, but it came up in that. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. I never even thought about that. But yeah, we were scheduling appointments for truckers. It wasn't that cool. We weren't talking to truckers. We were talking to people and receiving docs. It's a very tedious, very crummy job. I think we were like getting into like playing fiasco and, and stuff like that. And we, me and Mike, you know, we're doing improv. I was doing the theater company. But he he came up one day and was like, hey, we've got this game. This game seems pretty cool. It was Shadowrun. And I just heard about it. I was listening to Harmontown at the time. And they started playing. Uh, Dan Harmon started playing Shadowrun on his game. And I was like, OK, yeah, Mike seemed really into it. And I was curious. So and I, you know, I can run HeroQuest blind at this point. I'm like, you know absolutely confident in my abilities as a as a game master uh then uh so it's like mike was like hey let's get the book he's like okay cool and I, he was he was buddies with james james damato at the time and had been on the podcast a few times and i think he was in some like chat group or something and he mentioned that he was going to get a shadow run game together and james damato was like super stoked about that we should we should since i'm not sure how much the audio drama and actual play listenerships overlap we should quickly gloss who James and Kat are and what One Shot is. Yeah, James D'Amato, he runs uh, One Shot, which is a podcast network specializing in podcasts about role-playing games. And that's that's the network that Neoscum is on. And I think one of the great attractions for me uh, for One Shot is that the people that play these games with James and Kat are mostly Chicago improvisers, which I think lends a very different sheen to the sorts of actual plays that you would otherwise hear. So people that are like trained to like fail and are like really used to like leaning into character conflict in interesting ways. Yeah, right, 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 right. Uh, I think improv training is very interesting for that, yeah. But yeah, yeah, James only ended up playing with us like one time, but um, that's where I met Blair, Blair Britt, who's on the podcast. He was buddies with Mike. But yeah, it was just like, okay, we have this game. Oh my goodness, this book was so expensive. I guess we need to... uh, start running some games. Although Mike's first character was Dak Rambo and uh, has remained such. 
I mean, how could it be anything but Dak Rambo? How different is Mike from Dak Rambo? Oh, he's 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 different. I mean, he's you know, dude can come up with a quip in half a moment, but uh, uh, I think he's far less foolhardy. And uh, but they're both ripped, both uh, ripped, um, <laughs> rugged individuals. Sure. If you could go back and do it again, would you use a different game system? Would you keep the aesthetic and the characters, but use a different system? Oh yeah, that's a good question. I don't know because there are, I think because there are a lot of good things that came out of this game specifically from it being a Shadowrun game. Um, And there were a lot of specific things to the gameplay that became interesting and like a necessity to explore that I wouldn't have otherwise. Like um, the concept of the matrix, like always making sure that if I'm building out of physical world, I need to have some concept of what the matrix is going to look like. That's like the online world for Shadowrun, which is an interesting challenge. Like, okay, I'm making this tower and there's this guy here and there's going to be this gun turret over here. But like, hey, we got a guy, a hacker in this group and this dude is going to want to hack into some stuff. I need to know what he's going to see when he tries to do that and how hard that's going to be. And it adds an interesting uh, layer and depth to the world, knowing that at any moment they could just Google anything. I mean, you can't do that in, can't do that in D&D. And that's tough. Like, I remember, like, my first games, like, realizing, like, halfway through, like, oh, shit, player's going to want to, like, hack into something. Uh, and I have to be able to bring a world that kicks back at him when he does that. I can't just be like, uh, uh, uh. So, I mean, I really dig that challenge. And I think there are a lot of flaws in the Shadowrun system. It's certainly not super user-friendly or as user-friendly as like D&D or HeroQuest. But I kind of like playing with what we got in this circumstance. So I'd keep it. I'm keeping it. Okay. I think think role-playing-based storytelling podcasts are super fascinating as mechanisms for fiction. Uh, And it's different from pretty much everything else that we play on Radio Drama Revival. Mm -hmm. But what fascinates me about the genre is how collaborative it is. Like, who's the author of Neo Scum? Is that even a question worth asking? Because you, as the GM, you know, you do a lot of writing. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that has been a super fascinating thing to get into. Like, we, we started recording this game just kind of for fun to see what would come of it. But then the more we do it, the more very interesting storytelling issues will pop up that feel sort of rare in uh, certainly the world of theater improv. But uh, who writes the story that is like, like genuinely, truly, it's a group effort. I mean, one of the things that I believe in most for like game mastering or whatever is, um, and this is actually, this is an improv rule too, is that you actually avoid story try to write to like plot or story as little as possible because uh, the characters and the players will inevitably inevitably just like very organically build out the story. And that story will be way more interesting than like, oh, you, you wake up in New York and there's like a rune and you're the chosen one and you have to put this rune into this whole or something, you know, like whatever. I, 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 um, so, so for me, I like try and keep it like as absolutely as open as possible. If they want to like run down the street nude, they will. And I have done that and they're going to continue to keep doing that. Um, then they'll do that. And I just want to make a world that is honest and kicks back um, in the most kicks or hugs back in the most honest way possible. And I think that that's a pretty cool experiment, you know, because like one of the things that I dig about that is like when you're watching a narrative TV show or listening to a narrative podcast, 
you know, there's stakes for the character, but it's in a way like different than if you're listening to like a documentary podcast or watching a documentary. You see that you're like, oh, these are real people like having to go through all these things. I'm very caught up in their story that they're actually living in a funny way. Like this podcast, these characters do have stakes in a way that like a typical narrative thing doesn't because their characters can actually die or uh, be hurt. Their their actions will dictate what happens to them and the people around them, which you know, is something that's been very exciting to me and like sort of like checking out how that works is is really thrilling. But to answer that question that you gave me, yeah, I run the games. Everyone else chooses where it goes. And then Casey edits it and he does a totally knockout job. And I think that certainly like the tone and the movement of the story is massively indebted to the uh, really killer job he does on that. You ever see that Chuck Jones cartoon, Duck Amuck? where Daffy says, like, screw it, you can't draw me however you like, and he walks off the background, and he tries to grab the pencil out of the hand of the animator. Oh, yes, I think I have seen that one. Sometimes I feel like Neo Scum is a really productive fight over that pencil. Because, <laughs> like, Ganon, you as GM, you have all this narrative power, and then the players balance it out by being fucking maniacs half mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other element where it's out of your hands and theirs because it's up to the dice pool. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing that's really interesting. That's like different than if we were just like improvising like a narrative thing and the the dice, you know, that like that gives a different sort of like weighty um, stakes to each moment. And it it, it sort of grounds everyone. So you can't just be like, oh, I, you know, I do whatever and I can do that because I've said I've done that. Like everything kind of has to get backed up by the the chance of like throwing out some dice. Uh, I mean, that's we're we're still figuring out what we can do with that. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. What's the difference, do you think, between playing a game, just all of you just hanging out playing a game, and playing a game for an audience? Hmm. That's interesting because uh... I'll give I'll give you a gross example. Yes, please. Like, do you think there would have been as much pus talk if? In both directions, if if the players hadn't been like, ah, yeah, this is really going to goose the audience. And if you were like, oh, this is really going to turn listeners off. Mm. Yeah, uh, there would probably be more pus talk. Honestly, everyone would probably <laughs> be a lot grosser. You'd probably be uh, less interested. I don't know. Like, I think there'd be interesting narrative arcs. But I, I uh, when you're when you're playing among e- each other, you you don't have to worry about giving like a Meisner worthy, like beautiful scene. You can just kind of be like futzing around with the things that immediately thrill you. Yeah. Certainly for the show, there's a little bit more like care. I don't know. Like for, for like a regular game, I probably wouldn't re-listen to the episodes as much as I do like making notes about like, Mm -hmm. Oh, they mentioned this one time. So this must be real in the world. So I should keep track of that. You know, it would probably be a lot looser. Hey, Hey Gannon. Hey, Hey, how how many Meisner actors does it take to change a light bulb? Oh, I don't know. How many Meisner actors does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I got like two actor jokes. Uh, That's pretty good. I think I think while I was going through Meisner training, I came up with one that was like, knock knock. Who's there? Fuck you! And then you're like, fuck you! And then you're like, fuck you! And then like someone breaks something, and you guys start like making out. <laughs> Well, I like it. Yeah, thank you. So, Gannon, you're an artistic director at Runaways Lab. Oh, yeah. Which is a Chicago theater company that describes itself as raw and stripped down. 
Does that aesthetic, and we talked about this a little, does that aesthetic play into what you do as a GM in Neo Scum? In a way. Um, in the same way, like, I'm very caught up in, like, what the visual output of the runaways is you know how it looks how it feels so obviously i'm going to be bringing the stuff that i really dig to the table which as i mentioned like punk rock 70s bullshit yodorowsky like whatever um oh we did not talk about yodorowsky we didn't talk about yodorowsky but that's a that's a big old big old influence sure there big old fan of holy mountain so yeah i don't know I'm drawing a lot of kooky runic stuff. You talked about the uh, Russian Orthodox looking bleeding mouth, bleeding eyes, Albert Einstein for goddamn geniuses. Yeah. I mean like also like raw and stripped down to necessity when you don't have that much money. So, and just coincidentally the art I like, it certainly thrives from uh, immediacy and having to work with what you have. Uh, so yeah, I'd say that that comes to the table. How did you decide like, all right, we're going to do this as a podcast now. Uh, well, I recorded a couple of uh, episodes. Like just for your notes? Yeah, right. Um, which is actually something I'd do during HeroQuest after a certain time is I would record HeroQuest games. And like really funny stuff would happen during HeroQuest games. And it'd be really fun and nice to be able to like send it back to the people like, I remember this part and just like, oh yeah, that was so awesome. So I started recording Shadowrun games as like a, a test or something just to see how it sounded. And the games were like really fun. I mean, uh, the, the, the games that we played before uh, Neo Scum were, were really cool and really exciting. And I think both me and, and Mike, I think it was, Mike was the one who had the idea of like, you know, we could probably do this as a podcast. I mean, how hard could it be? We'd get like a, a snowball mic and, 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 and just get into it. Do you and Casey have plans to make it even more immersive, like more sound design, more more scoring. Well, this is really cool. Like, there's actually an episode that's dropping today. I think just like naturally, we're pursuing what thrills us the most. So uh, I know Casey. Like, the more he edits, the the better he gets at editing, and the more stuff he can throw in. But the the fun announcement that's going to be on the podcast today is we reached out to this my favorite record label, uh, Hozak Records, to just like see like. I don't know. We've never we've never run a podcast before. We don't know what you do. And licensed music is a thing that uh, we care about at the One Shot Network. So like we were reaching out to Hozak like, hey, could we like use one of your songs every now and again? And they were super cool and really nice. And they sent us like a real massive load of like this really terrific, like uh, jam, very jam and garage rock and punk and like experimental music. Yeah, it's like I'm so stoked. And they have stuff from like 70s reissues of like power pop from the 70s and like glam stuff and like these punk bands who you've never heard of, like from like Atlanta and like the Midwest and who are just like this incredible stuff, like primo, primo, it's like 70s, 80s. And then the bands they have from right now are just like so insane and so great. So it's like really cool. Like we're going to start um throwing in a couple of Hozak songs here and there. Because Casey actually, right now he's got like this really amazing, I can't remember the name of what this thing is, but it's like he's got all these like public domain files he uses. But you know, every time you need the little sort of like a grimier touch, we we can pull from Hozak, which I'm really fucking stoked about. I'm really stoked. Yeah, uh, in terms of more immersive, uh, yeah, I think we're, I think it's sort of like naturally like, things are going well. So, you know, we'll try and keep on making a more, exciting something that's exciting to us and hopefully exciting to other people god i forget which episode it was now but i definitely like 
rewound and listened like five or six times. It was the um, the fight on the highway with the devil ladies. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's this one. There's this one like perfect moment that where the music just syncs perfectly with something you were describing. Some like hideous decapitation of like the devil <laughs> ladies on motorcycles. Yeah. And that was the first time I asked myself, like, oh, my God, does Casey compose music for the show? Or was that just, like, a really lucky, like, well-chosen piece of score? He's composed a few times, but mostly it's – and this dude, this dude, if I can brag about Casey Tony, this dude is not trained formally in sound design or anything like that. This is all stuff that he learned working on this podcast. I mean, so many of us came up that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I'm just always impressed by the way he can like take a um, a big piece of music and cut around it and warp it so that it ties right in with um, the uh, momentum and the the action story. I, I mean, I'm, I'm so stoked. Like when we started, I'd always wonder, like, I wonder if we'll ever really like play in sound effects and really getting into it. So it's like. It's really cool that that happened organically, and dude's a natural. Yeah, he's he's wonderful at it. There was a question I had about the the first episode with Rashawn from April 10th. Yes. I feel like I was listening to it just last night, um, and I, I felt like there was a bit where I heard someone, like, quietly saying under the music, rats, like, as the rats attacked? Am <laughs> I making that up? Was that in possible. there? It's very possible. Okay. I wasn't. I wasn't sure, and you I was might, trying to I find it today right. <laughs> at work. I th- I know everyone was very excited about the rats in those episodes, uh, <laughs> which just just kind of happened. They're traveling through this futuristic Denver city. They turn a corner. I roll for a random encounter. They happen to run into some rats. Eleni as pox goes buck wild, chopping them open, and then it just so happens a few episodes <laughs> later, rats come back, and they're like great unfinished business time to fuck up some more rats so yeah i think singing singing rats underneath the score sounds like us i want to i want to talk about improv a little bit and how how you feel that improv training has shaped the way the show is shaped yeah you know the uh hate to say it you know yes and is a very useful rule especially you know especially in running a game like i i've seen a lot of games being run and a lot of people like when they like get a hold of their characters and it's really fun to or it's initially very fun to be like kind of like poo poo other people's ideas like whoa you're acting crazy right now oh i don't know if that's a good idea or like someone will be like i'm gonna climb on the roof and the game master will be like no i don't i didn't write anything for that so you can't really like climb on that roof uh it and that like you know feels good to do that initially but as you do that a lot like you start to feel like everything's shut down for you and then nothing's really that fun so the yes and rule is like not literally saying yes to everything which is important it's um just like making sure that you are affirming the action of what everyone else is bringing so that as they say in improv the scene is moving forward they wouldn't call that a story it would be the scene so that's always been super helpful like these players who I play with, they are playfully antagonistic much of the time. And, you know, that's that's funny. I'm not here to like to stop them from doing that. So it's always like a funny challenge where like, 
you know, Mike or one of them will make a like a request that is so outrageous, like so outrageous and such as patently just such a terrible idea. And then to be like, I don't know, maybe the person they're talking to is actually what happens if they're stoked about that idea? What happens if they think that that idea is really cool? Or what happens if they do do that? And, you know, it gives the world more depth and it's more fun for the players. So I, that's 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 always something I'm thinking about. And the, the other but I think I think the rule I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think that's really, really important. And I think it's kind of like overlooked this. I don't know. And the role playing podcast that I have heard is an improv like at least I was trained at io and second city and the annoyance here in chicago uh and something that they all kind of emphasize is like when you do improv you think you want to tell a story or you think like the narrative is important because the audience thinks that the narrative is important they think the plot's really important they think that that's what they want to see they want to be able to follow the plot but actually like if you try and do something improvised and you're like okay i'm gonna really try and work out this plot like you lose stuff like relationships and just the small moments like it it becomes it comes very alien it becomes a lot of like explaining what you're going to do and people aren't really like uh living in the scene or any of that so i mean like that's one of the things that i think is like most fun and most thrilling about this game is really really making an effort to not write a story or really trying to not like okay well they have to hit this beat and they have to hit this beat but like really just trying to let it happen organically. I, um, you know, uh, maybe that's like a kind of like Joseph Campbell thing where a dude is like, uh, we have stories in our bones. The stories are in our DNA. Uh, so it's going to happen. You don't have to worry about making it happen. If you have faith in the players and in the environment and it'll just happen and it'll be so much more interesting for it. I think those are the two things I think about the most. Is that a Chicago school thing, do you think? Or is that just true of improv everywhere? I think, you know, I haven't I haven't done like a UCB or anything in New York or LA, but um but yeah, 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 that is specifically Chicago. Chicago. I mean, if you want to talk about the really thrilling improv history like Long form improv was invented in Chicago. So there's short form, short forms like whose line is it anyway? Long form is like uh, there really isn't like an equivalent like on TV or in movies or, or whatever. But it's like, yeah, lay it on me, Del Close. <laughs> yeah, right. Teach the children. The, the fucking Del Close thing, as the master Deb Close once said, it's 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 more like performance art. You're you can be more abstract. You can be more exploring like relationships. You don't have to be worried about like telling a joke or getting in, getting out. So I, I I think that because long form comes from Chicago, naturally, like sort of like trying not to ruthlessly pursue a story uh, is inherent to the Chicago thing. Like I know UCB is like, I don't know, I haven't read that book, but like the, the few shows that I've seen there and the stuff that I've heard and seen come out of there. Great, great stuff. Lots of great people coming out of UCB. All respect to UCB. UCB rules. It rocks. Um, but the, it seems like there's a little bit more like beats and games and stuff like that. That's a, that's a little bit more like uh, focused on creating a form that has like jokes and hooks and and, and stuff that you can kind of cling on to rather than like exploring the more abstract ideas of uh, just getting on stage and doing whatever. I think the first the first time I realized how cool improv was in an actual play RPG context was listening to an episode of Campaign. Mm, um, cool. 
and was John Patrick Cohen, right? Because JPC plays Trist Valentine, right? Not Johnny O'Mara? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think he's Trist. Tr- so, so this, so audience, I'm describing kind of like a, a Han Solo-esque character, like a Han Solo takeoff character. Very sexy, very confident uh, space pilot. And he just like fucking muffs it. Like he he plans something very audacious and he like just bombs horrifically. And when I've seen that in in game scenarios in my life, the player that fucks up, and sometimes the player has been me, gets like really disappointed that they didn't get to do the thing. But John Patrick Cohen was so much more interested in how that failure would play as an interesting and useful complication within the narrative. Mm -hmm. And so, like, even though that was a massive setback for his character, he made it dramatically interesting for me as a listener. And I thought that was very gracious and fascinating. And I was like, oh, I see why they chose improvisers. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's definitely that is something which is, you know, if you're going to fail, fail hard. I remember in uh, college, I had an improv class where it was like learning like improv combat. And they're like, you know, don't try to win <laughs> when you're like fighting someone on stage. You don't have to worry about winning, actually. Like if they punch you, if you like wipe out, like if you they hit you, you know, just let them destroy you like they are just like make that hit so good. Like they have completely wiped you out. And if you do that, then like, you know, huge laugh. Everyone loves it. Like the guy who punched you is cool. You wiping out is cool. Yeah. I think that's also, that's always, that's a great, you know, very useful, very cool rule. Here's another behind the curtain question. For sure. How much of the frustration of those characters is your acting? (laughs) And how much of it is you dealing with these players? I really try not to be frustrated. I really do. It's like kind of embarrassing, like listening back sometimes. Well, actually, I'll be listening back and I'll be like, I can't believe they're fucking doing that shit. It's making me so mad. That completely undoes everything I prepared. I can't be mad. I can't be mad. There is no story. We're just going with the flow. I'm yes and in this. So uh, yes, it's 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 real in in many in many <laughs> moments. Uh, it is okay. you know with with an incredible love, but uh, uh, yeah, I play into it. I use it. Sure. No, that's that's what that's what intrigues me about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I wanted to bounce off of something you said earlier about the characters' backstories, about the player characters' backstories. Like, did you work with everyone separately to develop their stories? Did they come to you with them pre-written? Like, what, you know, did you know when you started the game, like, what was going on with Zenith's history or Pox's terrifying dad or, like, wizard bigotry for Squirt Purpler? Yeah, uh, I think I had some ideas and everyone just, like, had had some kind of ideas about their character. And then we'd do an episode and I'd be like, oh, that's, like, an interesting thing about that person. And then I'd, like, reach out and be like, hey, so what are your thoughts about this character's backstory? And what's what do you think about this thing? And I'll, like, ask them some, some specific questions and we'll kind of, like, reach a middle ground of, like, what they don't know and what they do know. But, yeah, I mean, Z's is an interesting one because uh, uh, Blair, who plays Z, doesn't really know his past. He has a mysterious past. He seems to have been... Uh, manufactured as some sort of something for a corporation. Like he's, he was a person like 
bred from a child to be like for some sort of cause. Uh, and he has a very mysterious passport, which he does not know anything about. So like Blair had some ideas of what he'd like for the character and what the character would know. But only I know the true secret behind Z's past, which uh-huh. is pretty cool. I like that. But yeah, just everyone else is like, like, we'll, 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 we'll touch base every now and then I'll ask some questions and then we'll kind of like plot it out. And I, uh, I think, I think some people have, I, I, I know, I know Casey Tony has some pretty good concept of like what shaped tech wizard, his past, the, the, the moments of trauma that inspired him. Definitely very rich there. How much longer? I mean, how, how long do you think you want to do Neo Scum? I guess I probably know the answer to that. Right, like until an end presents itself, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, no end in sight right now, so we'll just keep trucking, see where it takes us. Sweet. Gannon, thank you so much for coming on RDR. This is great. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, Gannon. If you love Gannon, and who doesn't love Gannon, help him and his buddies afford a life of sweet, reckless abandon by visiting patreon.com slash neoscum to sign up for a donation. And while you're at it, baby, spread a little rhythm around, why don't you? Drop a buck or two in our donation zone, patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. If you contribute at $3 a month, you can hear fun extras and secrets, like the extended cut of the interview you heard just today. I tell a story about a bunch of 12-year-olds kicking me in the genitals repeatedly. That's content. Actually, it is a surprisingly sweet story. Anyway, don't forget about 11th Hour, my wicked little lovelies. Get started now, and you won't have hell to pay later. (laughs) Sorry, I was thinking about something funny. Uh, Unrelated. And now, credits. Our theme music is Danger Digi-Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreau. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. sound of this is the sound of the youth buddy you can't you can't see it but i'm being very cool i'm like really cool right now
The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium Miletta gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium Miletta gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.